you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Ezekiel chapter 38. I'm going to start in verse 14. We're going to finish the book of Ezekiel over the next few weeks, and then start a series in Philippians, and then after that I think we're going to do John. So, yeah, go ahead and flip there. I do want to apologize publicly to the worship team for having to choose music for the great eschatological battle of Gog and Magog. Um, guys, great job. Uh, as if last week, picking one for the demoniac wasn't hard enough. You did a set for this, so you guys are great. Okay. So, I'm not going to read all of both chapters. Um, we're not 19th century Presbyterians, but it's not necessarily good. Um, I'm going to start in verse 14 and read through to um, verse 8 of the next chapter, and then I'm going to read 21 through 24 of that chapter. Actually, I'm going to read through 28. All right, you ready? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army, and you will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Are you not the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel? At that time, they prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. And this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the Sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned, the cliffs will crumble, and every wall will fail, fall to the ground. And I will summon a sword against Gog. And all, on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord, every man's sword will be against his brother. And I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. And I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness. And I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. So the man prophesy against Gog and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshesh and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along, and I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. And I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop to your right hand. And on the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. And I will give you as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to wild animals, and you will fall in the open fields. For I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in safety in the coastlands, and they will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned. And the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the day I have spoken of. Look at verse 21. I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sins. 
because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will now bring Jacob back from captivity and will have compassion on all the people of Israel, and I will be zealous for my holy name, and they will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed towards me when they lived in safety in the land with no one to make them afraid. And when I have brought them back from the nations— and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies. I will show myself holy through them in the sight of, my, of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord their God. For though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. And I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord." Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and admit that this is the hardest passage I think I've written a sermon on. <laughs> um, this passage flows through the sort of four dramatic acts of Exodus, right? Chapters 31 to 32 are basically rebuke to convince Israel that they went into captivity for their sins. Right? Chapter 33 is God reclaiming how each person can be saved and deal with this reality that they're living in. Then 34 through 37 is about God's restoration, what he's going to do. That he's going to give them a new heart, that he's going to give them a new shepherd, that he's going to give them a new king, that he's going to make a new life for them, that he's going to raise dead bones up into a new life, ultimately in resurrection. But he's going br- to resurrect the people of Israel at some point in the, res- in the captivity. And then you get to chapter 38 and 39, and kind of sort of— and, and, and then you have this, Gog and Magog, and this whole army coming to kill them. And then in chapter 40 to 48, there's this new temple, this new worship. that We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. It's sort of a weird episode. God, like, God is telling about this work of restoration. He's already covered a lot of destruction in chapters 1 through 32. And then there's these two chapters where after he restores his people, and they're living in this land under this new king, his servant David, which is Jesus— ultimately, he says that the nations of the earth are going to come against it and try to destroy everything, right? Which is strange because um, you might not expect that in the story at this point, right? It's supposed to be on the upswing. This is supposed to be the happy part of Ezekiel, okay? Secondly, this is—these names, Gog and Magog, are only mentioned twice in the Bible together. One is here, and the other is in Revelation 21, because the Apostle John understood this battle to be a end— end-of-time sort of thing. Not something that these people would see. Um, you can see this if you line up Revelation 19 and 21 with Ezekiel 37 to 48, right? There's, there's a resurrection of people in dead bones. There's the first resurrection. There's the new King David. There's King Jesus. There's Gog and Magog. There's Gog and Magog. There's a great battle. The birds feast. There's a new temple and then a new city. Then there's an angel that measures everything in both cases of what the new city is like, the new temple is like. And then there's a river of life that brings life, not just to the people of Israel, but flows out to the nations, okay? They're both kind of like a picture of God's ultimate salvation. He lays this in front of people while they're in exile. Now, last week I said—or last week, February 7th, the last time we were in Ezekiel, um, it was—we were still in the depressing part of winter. I said that personally what we can take from this group of chapters from 33 to 48 is that the God of final victory is enough for our present destiny. That in every generation, 
people face things, and they, and they don't necessarily know. God seems more hidden than they wished, and they're struggling with what to do with that. And what God is saying when he, when he talks about this end thing that we're not going to physically see ourselves, what he's trying to say to us is, is that knowing that he has promised a final victory gives us what we need for our present destiny. Because, if, because the greatest temptation for human beings is always to lose hope, right? We, people, people have an inherent human conscience that we have because of the image of God. We kind of know what it would be like to do the most noble thing we know to do. But if, if no one is ever going to enforce that, if no one is ever going to set things right, if no one's ever going to account for any of this stuff, does it really matter? Is it really right? What does right even mean? If it's just something abstractly there out in the ether of humanity, but nothing's ever going to come of it. Like, what would happen if, I, if, somebody, if, if America had all the laws that it had, but there were no police, no lawyers, no judges, no courts, no prisons, no nothing to enforce anything, but the laws were there? Right? Do you think people would be just like, we should just do it because they're good? Right? That's not how human beings normally behave. Partly because we're bad. Partly because what would it even mean to have something like honor and righteousness, but no interest in where it comes from to enforce it in the end? Right? And so you have this situation where God has done all this work, and it's produced something beautiful. That is, the people are living in the land. And what happens is wicked humanity, that is the nations around him, flowing through this Prince Gog and Magog, which is traditionally central Turkey today, will say, they got a lot of money there. They're sitting ducks. Let's just go take everything. That is, the thing that God supernaturally rebirths, why can't it just be devoured by wicked men? Like, if God does a rebirth in us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we put our faith in him, we receive the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, we become new people in Christ, new creations, turn to him in the new birth, and we say, I'm going to live the way God has always called his people to live, in faith towards him, in worship, in what righteousness I know, right? And in justice towards others. Like, what, what keeps the productivity of that from just being devoured by whoever wants to kill me? Or destroy whatever I try to do? That's what happens here, right? Uh, a way outsized army comes to just take everything God's done. And God says, here's what's going to happen. I'm just going to destroy it. Now, um, so February 7th, I talked about the personal lesson. But, but understanding what our destiny even is, in some ways requires us to locate ourselves in the world that, world that we live in. To say the God of final victory is the God of our personal destiny. And that's enough. That's great. But what is our personal destiny? Where are we located in the world? What is happening? And what are we supposed to do? Right? And one of the things that God shows here is that he'll reveal himself to the nations through his people. That's always been his goal. That's always been his purpose. Forever, since the very beginning of the Bible, God creates Adam first, not Abraham. He's the God of all nations, not just the God of the Jews. Abraham is specifically selected so that God would make a name for him so that Abraham would make a name for God, which is the opposite of Babel, which is that men were going to make a name for themselves and so have a name better than God's. But Abraham was going to be given a name by God. God was going to make Abraham's name great because through Abraham, Abraham and his descendants were going to make God's name great because he was going to make them a nation of kings and priests, right? And then all through the story of God, into Exodus, into the kingdom, 
the prophets, the judges, every single episode is an episode of God seeking to make his name known, who he is known to all the nations of people, through the people he has chosen for himself and who have believed and trusted in him, or at least nominally taken on his name, right? That's always his goal. What is the destiny of history? God is seeking in every generation to make himself known to the nations, to all the peoples of the earth, and offering them the offer he gives to all people, that he is real, that you can believe and trust in him in faith. You can be brought into his family of faithfulness, those pursuing righteousness and justice in his name as he describes it. That is the law of love. And you can, in that community, be a prophetic voice to the nations to call in more of his children by birth to be his children by spirit and adoption. And here's the problem with this. Throughout all the history of all the peoples of God, we have been making this very confusing for the nations. The people of God have always behaved in such a way as to not go along with this basic plan, where God chooses us, calls us to have faith in him, calls us to the law, that is to live righteously and beautifully, and then he blesses. That was the plan, remember, in the Old Testament. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to believe in me and have a a relationship of worship, so everybody knows why you're doing this, right? He's like, then I'm going to give you a law. You're going to actually behave like you're my people. You're going to image the image of God. You're going to actually live according to humanity as I created it intentionally, and then I'm going to bless you. And so through that dynamic, people will say, okay, they're worshiping the God of Israel, The God of Israel is making them live beautifully and just, and then they are blessed. And that this is a contradiction to the way all of the world lives, which is by power and violence and idolatry and selfishness. So that he who has the biggest gun or the most tanks gets to tell people how to live, gets to eat what people have grown. And God's like, no, I'm going to set up a counter-reality. And when people come to attack you, I will defend you. But this is how it is. You, You worship me. You live according to my law in true righteousness, and then I bless you. That's how the nations will know what I'm like. But the people didn't do it. They couldn't get out of their system the way the world really works. Pragmatism. Putting myself first. Making sure I'm taken care of. I can't live by this idealism. And so we always, we're always slipping back into that, right? So some things we can learn about this in this passage. I've got 16. The first is, the personal God is the geopolitical God. Okay, look, I know you're like, oh my gosh, we're going to talk about politics. Just relax, okay? Let's start with the first premise. In the Bible, the God of the Bible is a personal God. He's very personal. Salvation is individual. Right? And yet, everywhere in the Bible, God is working among the nations. Why? Because God is trying to reveal himself to the nations through a nation. He's creating a people of God, which is a people, a nation, and through them he's trying to display himself to the nations. And so what happens among the nations matters profoundly for what God is doing. So God is not just the individual God. The God who is the individual God is also the geopolitical God, because he wants every individual in every nation— to know what it means to belong to him, to be invited to belong to him, to see a display, a testimony of what it means to belong to him, the true God. Right? And therefore, it matters to him 
what happens in the world among nations. Right? He says, you will come from your place in the far north, and you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, O Gog, I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. You see, why does God create this final battle? Why does he destroy these? You see, we, when we normally see this just through the lens of Revelation 20 and 21, we think the whole purpose of this is God kills everybody who's not a believer right? It's the end, right? So it's over. So you, there's the people of God, and then you've got all the bad people coming to kill them. And so as a pre-hell ordinance, God kills everybody who's not a believer, right? But like when you actually read this in its context in Ezekiel, that doesn't appear to be God's main point. His main point is so that like all seven or eight of these nations that he names in the first part of chapter 38, when the army that they sent gets entirely obliterated in a completely unforeseen way by people completely unprepared for war, that they would learn from that God has shown himself holy. That is, there's a God in Israel who defends those he blesses, who believe in him, who worship him, and who seek to live out his ways in the world. Right? God is seeking to display this to the nations. The God who is the personal God is also the geopolitical God. The, the, the reality is, is that God has always interacted with nations partly because there, there will be no nations to judge before the white throne of God's judgment in the end. Um, George Mason said this. And George Mason said this in Virginia in 1787. This was not an easy thing to say in the state assembly in Virginia in 1787. He said, every master of slaves is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven on a country. And then this is, this is the key for this morning. Because there are many national sins that people can do that make themselves petty tyrants and destroy the lives of others. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. Now, he believes the main one is by providence, by the laws of nature, he says, which a lot of the founding fathers did. They were children of the Enlightenment, right? By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. One of the things he believed was is that sins are also poisons. And so what comes about through our sins is the poisoning of our culture and people, which brings about a calamity naturally, <laughs> right? Abraham Lincoln, several decades later, believed it was the direct act of providence to bring about the Civil War in American history because of the great moral calamity of slavery. And that it, it was, in a second article, Jesse basically said, until every— he, God can squeeze out of us a drop of blood for every unrequited mark of toil— of people on this continent, right? He said God would be just to do so, right? That I know that we get uncomfortable and embarrassed when Christians who have maybe not thought through it very much will look at an event that happens in the world and they will proclaim its meaning. I think I—I I think this was several years ago. I want to say Pat Robertson, when there was a huge earthquake in Haiti, said publicly that this was— a punishment of God for the years of voodoo worship in Haiti. And then, like, good, sophisticated, educated Christians were like, this guy's an idiot, right? How can you be so unfeeling to say such a thing? Are you kidding me? Right? Who's right? I don't know. Can God bring a calamity to a nation who for— decades, maybe centuries, 
has worshipped devils via voodoo, he would be just and righteous altogether. Would he have to apologize if he didn't do something similar to us at some point? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I don't claim to know. In the Old Testament, God used his prophets to interpret his acts geopolitically so that we could know better. I trust Ezekiel a little bit more than Pat Robertson. It's a personal, <laughs> personal conviction. Um, but I don't, I mean, I, it's hard to tell who God's prophets are because there's so many false ones. But we can't possibly understand what he's doing if we don't think that God is a geopolitical God. He is. He's revealed all through the Bible to be a geopolitical God. What happens in America, what happens in Madison, what happens in Wisconsin, what happens in New York and California, what happens among peoples bound together in economies and societies, how they live, whether they choose to live more righteously or more wickedly, what they believe, what they profess, how that functions in the world matters to God. God does judge nations. And he blesses nations. And he does it in ways that are somewhat inscrutable to us. We may not know exactly what's happening. Was COVID some kind of global judgment? I don't know. Could it have been? Would we have deserved it? Would it be incredibly lenient? Absolutely. Right? Now, we also have to recognize that the God who is a geopolitical God does not cease in that moment to be the personal God. There's a number of times in the book of Ezekiel where God explicitly says, if the whole nation goes to hell and is completely destroyed, you can be saved. There's this place where he goes out from the threshold of the temple and he, he tells the angel to kill everybody who is an idolater. And he's, he's, but he sends out an angel first to mark everybody who is grieving and laments the moral state and the spiritual state of the people of Israel. He's like, you mark those people. I see every one of them. And so in any society, no matter how corrupt it's become, no matter how much God will in his providence geopolitically judge it, every person is not lost. They might die. They might die. But they are not lost. They are marked in Ezekiel by an angelic figure so that they cannot be missed because they glow in the spiritual eyes of God as he sees a people. Now, a couple applications on this. This is stuff you can talk about in your small groups. The general providence of our lives is bound to our nation. It says this in, um, in Jeremiah 29, for example. The people go into exile. They're now in, they live in Babylon, right? And so they could be like, well, we're Israelites, and these are Babylonians. We hate these people, okay? But, God says, you need to grow as a people. You need to have children and marry and buy vineyards and, like, engage in human life and grow as the people of God. But, you also need to live for the peace and prosperity of the city of Babylon, because as they prosper, as they live, as they, so will you. If they're destroyed, you'll be destroyed. If their crime rates are high, your crime rates are high. If they have a depression, you're going to have a depression. Your lives are bound together with them in all these temporal ways, and this is true for all of us. Our lives are bound together with our neighbors here in Madison and in Wisconsin and in the United States and around the world. And our lives with them and our interactions with them do matter. So can Christians speak publicly about things? Yes. Can they speak politically about things? Yes. Like, we're not some parentheses out, out group of people whose lives are not affected by what happens in the world. Secondly, 
our personal salvation is still personal. You can live in a nation that is greatly blessed by God, that is greatly loved by God, that serves God, and be damned, and be lost. Right? And the opposite is also true. You could be in an incredibly ignoble nation at a, com- at a completely corrupt time and be saved. Right? And third is that God offers revelation of both, in both of these arenas. He, he doesn't just act in both of these arenas. When he speaks and shows himself in Scripture, when he tells us about his moral thoughts, when he says how, what he calls righteousness and wickedness, what he calls righteousness and wickedness that does not require his revelation. So he says that there are some things that human beings, even in the fallen state, even under the curse, can know are right and wrong and have the duty to live in accordance with it in their geopolitical realities, and that there is no excuse for not doing so. He tells us in the Bible and through his Christ and by his prophets what those are. Right? And he tells us, no matter what society you live in or what it's doing or how it's failing or how it's being blessed, you matter. Your heart, your salvation, your growth and godliness, the Spirit's work in your life, and among God's people as a sub-nation among the nations. We have a revelation for all three of those dynamics. And we should pay attention to all three of those dynamics, not just whichever one we like. Does that make sense? Two of 16. People take the wrong message from God's acts. One of the difficulties in reading Scripture is that God does these geopolitical acts among nations to reveal himself, and people willfully get the wrong message from it. It's really sad, and it's really constant. Right? He says this in these verses. I will summon a sword against Gog and all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of hail, rain, hailstones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and then you will know that I am the Lord. One of the interesting things about this is that he says— to Gog and Magog, that is, the, un- the ungodly nations, right? He says, you have completely misinterpreted what it means that I brought my people back together and created them in a nation again and began to cause them to prosper. Like, you interpreted that to be through, through um, there's no God in Israel because the people went into exile in the first place. If there was a God protecting the Israelites, they would have never gone into exile. So we know there's no God in Israel. Now, they came back through some, like, act of chance, right? And now there are people, and they're becoming prosperous. Well, they've got plenty of money. There's plenty of people to kill and enslave and steal from. And we know there's not a God in Israel. This is perfect. Let's go destroy them. And you see, the problem here is, is that they've misinterpreted something, which is, it says in the later in the chapter, they've misinterpreted what happened. They don't really understand why Israel went into exile. They just assume because there's no God, or no God in Israel. And it wasn't. God says, I sent them into exile because of their sin, because of their unfaithfulness. And you see, human beings are constantly doing this, right? Um, Because of that, God will make himself known through alternative and calamitous plans when necessary. So here's what I mean. God's main plan to reveal himself, it says all through Scripture, is to take a people, to give him his name, to lead them to faith and worship, 
to teach them as laws that they would live justly and rightly, right? And then to bless them. And by that picture of blessing and prosperity, living in righteousness and holiness, worshiping the God who is there, all people could know that God is God, right? However, humanity does not like participating with that plan for some reason. And so, there's another plan, which is that God will use alternative and really calamitous plans when necessary. Right? So, for example, he says this in a few verses later. He says, I will display my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God, and the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sins because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and handed them over to their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. Do you see what he's saying here? This is really important. When the exile happened, God's people were in Israel, and Babylon comes in and just completely destroys them. How should that be interpreted, right? As I just said, well, this is how you interpret it. There's no God in Israel. There's no God to save them. We can just kill them. It's fine, right? And God's like, well, but that wasn't the reason. So how do I get them to interpret things rightly? And the answer is, you set up the same situation again, except you bring more peace and prosperity to the people. And then you allow another group of looters to come in to try to destroy everything. And the opposite thing happens. They don't win. They don't destroy Israel. They don't carry them off into exile. They get destroyed. You see what God is saying? He's saying on that day, when these, all these armies come, a much bigger army than Babylon ever had, to a much more defenseless people than the people of Israel were when they had walls built around all their cities. And they come, right? And I destroy them utterly, so much that for nine months, nobody has to cut any wood to burn any fires because all of the shafts of spears and bows and arrows and all the—just the wood left over from all these people dying— can be all the wood that's needed to burn in the whole country for the better part of a year. And it will take months for people not to fight a battle against these people, but just to go through the land and collect all the dead bodies and bones and pile them all up to make a huge mound that will be called the Hill of Gog. That's it. He said, in that day, what they're going to know is this. Israel's going to know there is a God in Israel. That the reason why you were taken to Israel was not because I wasn't alive. It was not because God didn't exist. It wasn't because God didn't care. It wasn't because God wasn't interested. And it wasn't because God wasn't holy. And it wasn't because God wasn't great. It was because they didn't believe in him. They didn't follow him. They, as it says in chapter 37, profaned his name among the nations. They acted in every possible way to make sure that any nation watching them could never understand the thing God was really to himself. They were an impediment a complete impediment to the nations knowing what God wanted to tell them. And so, this is the other plan. When he completely annihilates the armies of those nations, he shows that their original interpretation and Israel's interpretation of what happened was false. The opposite was the case. Israel will know there is a God in Israel. Therefore, what sent you into exile? It wasn't a lack of God's power. So what was it? Well, your prophet said all along, you didn't believe in the Lord. You didn't follow him. You just chased your idols, whatever you wanted to do, which led to violence, which led to a complete destruction of God's plan to let the nations know what he was through you. And what did the nations learn? They're like, well, we're just going to go plunder, just like the Babylonians did, except then you die. 
And so now the nations are forced to reinterpret what happened. Wait a second. The only way that battle could have been won by Israel is if there's a God in Israel. So, wait a second. So why did they get destroyed by Babylon in the first place? And the answer is, because not, not because God had abandoned them, not because he didn't exist, but because God was punishing them through Babylon because he isn't like what they were like. He doesn't believe what they believe. He didn't act the way they, they acted. He wasn't like them. They were unlike him. And so he punished them, and they were not to learn what God was like by looking at them. Quite the opposite. So God is showing himself through this calamity, which is terrible. And friends, here's, here's the thing. But in every generation, right, God is inviting people to do it the, the first way. Let's look at this first. One of the reasons why this is so confusing for the nations is because God's people feed this misunderstanding through faithlessness. This is all over the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 20, one of the things that happens is God is trying to express to Israel what it's like to be their God, doing what he's attempting to do, which is to make the nations know him, really know him. And he says, here's, here's the problem. This started the first day we left Egypt, right? They left Egypt, and God, through incredible power, did the ten plagues. He parted the Red Sea. He created the Passover and created this international miracle by which he brought his people into Israel. And he displayed not just to the people of Israel, but to all the nations that he was this powerful God who was starting something new among this new people who would be Israel, who were going to come into this promise, and everybody was going to understand what he was like. And the, the, not, the eyes of all the regional nations were on them because they had walked through a sea right? But before they got anywhere, they said, we don't know where this Moses guy is. They can't wait 40 days for him, right? They make a golden calf. They engage in pagan revelry, which means an Egyptian-style fertility god orgy, something like that. And God turns to Moses and says, listen, Moses, he's like, I'm going to just, I'm going to just kill all these people. Do you, I don't know if you remember this passage, but in Exodus 32, it says this, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they're stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and then I will make you in a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say— Did you catch this? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought you out, brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel— to whom you swore an oath by yourself. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants the land that I promised them, and it will be for their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Do you see the point that he's making there? People always ask, well, is God just playing a game? And did Moses talk God out of killing people? Well, what? You see, what God is displaying in Exodus 32 is that his plan is made a catch-22 by the sinfulness of human beings. That's what it's like to be our God. Isn't that fun? Sounds fun, right? Because you see, if, if he sticks with us and blesses us and gives us what he promised and we worship idols and behave treacherously, then he is displaying to the nations what he's like through us. A bunch of faithless, treacherous, violent, unjust idolaters, which is not his goal, it turns out. But 
with the nations watching us and his name already put on us, if he kills us, then they're going to get the wrong idea in a different way. That like, yeah, I mean, if there was, even if there was a God, he just took them out there to kill us because he's probably on our side. So yeah, the plagues were bad, but he just killed everybody, right? Who would want to follow that God? And who even knows what he's doing? He like tries to kill us, then he kills them. He's just killing everybody. It doesn't sound like a good God, right? The Egyptians are going to get completely the wrong idea. So what's God supposed to do? Right? And what he does is, is that he wipes out that generation in the desert. He keeps them there 40 more years. He delays his plans. He raises up a new generation. He gives them an opportunity to go back to plan A, which is believe in me, live according to my law, in faith. I, I will put you in this place to be seen, and I will bless you, and all the nations will know me. And then it turns out they didn't do it either. And then the age of the judges, they didn't do it. And then the ages of the kings, they didn't do it. All the way until the exile. And so what God is saying, he's saying, don't, don't you see? The exile is just another desert. It's another, it's another situation where I have to, I have to punish a whole generation. I have, to, I have to rework the whole thing. I have to start basically all over again. I have to completely redo the reputation. I have to restart my name. I have to completely rebrand everything because like you won't, you just won't do it. And so he sends them all in exile because he's going to completely restart the thing. Because we human beings just, we just, we're not doing our part here. We're supposed to be showing the nations what God is like. All the peoples, from our neighbors to our enemies. Right? So here's the last thing. There's not 16, there's only five. Um, this doesn't sound like that many now, right? Um, God offers an alternative in every generation. God offers an alternative in every generation. You see, in every generation that we see in the Bible, God does this, right? He gives them the first plan. They choose not to do it. He alternates to a more calamitous, painful, and destructive means of bringing us back around to his original mission. And then he says, hey, you guys want to get on the first plan again? Can you believe that? Really? Like, we just, like, we trash his name. We just don't do, like, we're, we just, like, everything he's trying to do redemptively, lovingly, caringly, everything he's made us for to do, we're just like, whatever, we don't care. And he's finally like, okay, I got to do this other thing because you won't do the thing I told you to do. And so he does something really calamitous and harmful and painful and difficult, right? And you're like, all right, well, we got that message. You know, he's like, okay, I'm glad you got the message. I hate doing that. Can we, you want to get back on plan one? And so this is what he says in, to the exiles, right? The exiles are like, we're all dead. He's like, no, listen, you're not. Just, just do where you are now the thing I told you to do in the first place. Believe in me. Be a people. And I'll bless you. Just do it in Babylon. That's where you are. That's where I've set you. I, I, I'm not going to reset your lifestyle. I'm not going to reset all the circumstances that you wish you could renew. But in the place where you are right now, you can still do those things. I am still with you. You can still turn to me. You can still live according to the law. And I can still bless you. So do it right there, right now. And then in 50 years, I'm going to bring a generation of people from all over the world, wherever they've been scattered, and bring them all back to Israel. I'm going to remake a people, and I'm going to give them a new heart, and I'm going to pour my spirit on them. I'm going to give them every spiritual power and advantage that you can possibly give the people so that they can try again. And I'm going to give them one of the greatest leaders in the history of all of our people. I'm going to give this to this man, Nehemiah. And he is going to lead them in righteousness all the days of And he's going to be the best chance to reconstitute a people 
who will believe in me and live according to righteousness and let me bless them. So I can show the nations that I am kind and compassionate and loving and I want to pour out the storehouses of heaven upon them so that not just so they can be rich, but so that they can be compassionate and so that they can show that they can stand humbly in the presence of God and receive good things and pour out good on their enemies and the nations will know what I'm like. And they did that for like 40 years out of 400. And then God sent an even better leader. Right? He sent a man that in himself was a new Israel who in suffering and in victory amidst all the people, no matter how corrupt they were, whether they were from the nations or whether they were from Israel, he always believed in God as though they were one. And he acted according to the law of love and was compassionate even on the wicked, always inviting them to God's original plan through faith, and demonstrating it miraculously in blessing by healing and liberating and freeing and telling the truth and speaking against corruption and doing what anybody who has ever would have belonged to God would have ever done, except like he just like knew the details. And then Gog and Magog did exactly what they always do. They marched against him with all their power in God. God didn't defend him. At first, at first it looked like they destroyed everything. And they threw him like garbage in a grave, you know. And then God, like hailstones from heaven, raised him from the dead and reversed the interpretations of the nations so that the nations would know that there was a God in Israel. And then he made a people and sent them to the nations. A new and voluntary exile of the people of God amidst all the people of all the nations, and sent us to every tribe, tongue, and nationality in every generation to the end of the earth with a new people who were called to the same thing his people had always been called to do. To believe in him in the name of his Christ. To live according to the law of love, truly differently from the world around them in a way that is observable and sacrificial. And to receive his blessing and to use that blessing to be a steward of his compassion. And friends, we, um, in every generation, God gives an opportunity again to us to be his people. We have an opportunity in 2022 in Madison, and wherever you will move over the next five years or whatever, in your lifetime, to make a people of God in a church among a people where we have the opportunity to display what it looks like to really believe, to really live according to the law of love, and not by the pragmatic nature of the world, and to receive God's blessings and joy, even in the midst of the shaking apart of suffering and attack and his vindication and what he will do for us and what he will not do for us, like his Christ in the way of the cross and the vindication of the resurrection. We have a moment right now to not be like our neighbors— to not even be like other churches. I fear that in this moment in America, God is not so upset at our geopolitical stuff and our debt. And he, like that he, there's a crisis in his church. His church is not different enough. He's not looking for a politically different enough church. He's looking for a church that is holy, that is willing to apply faith 
to make every effort, given the riches of the gospel, to pursue Christ in maturity, in fullness, to race after Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because of the joy set before me, endured a cross. And we can endure this generation in an incredible amount of beauty that we have not yet touched individually, together, as a nation to the nations. And it requires hope in incredible abundance. The people of God weren't just, they weren't more wicked than us. People lose hope. They don't believe that the God of final victory is the God of our destiny. That he will raise the dead and he will give back your good name and he will destroy the armies of Gog and Magog in the end. And he will remake his people and he will, he will give us a land and he will, he will do a thousand beautiful things on our behalf. But his goal in these days, as in days past and in future days, is that the nations would know what he is really like. And you and I are that message. It is our destiny. It is our, it is our honor. It is our purpose. It is our potential. It is our meaning. And it is our life together. All we have to do to live to this destiny is love each other. That's all he wants. He just wants us to love each other, to be there when somebody dies, to hug each other, to, to bear each other's burdens, to confront each other when necessary, lovingly, to obey his word together. It's not, it's not as difficult as deciding what the earthquake in Haiti meant or whether COVID was a—we we we don't have to know what any of it means. You don't have to know what any of it means. The stuff we need to understand and know is written in plain sentences that are direct statements about exactly what we're meant to believe and do together. The question is, is will we be typical in humanity? Will we be nominal in our faith? Or will we be the display of God's beautiful character to the nations? Because in every generation, he gives us another chance, whatever calamity we have faced. No matter what our circumstances are now, both individually for your salvation and together as his people, he says, listen, all you have to do, believe in me. And in my Christ, walk with me in obedience to the law of love as best you can, but as fully as you know how. And let me bless you in all the ways I can. Let's pray. God, um, I hope you liked this sermon. Uh, I, I pray that you'll use it in us, in our, in our lives. I pray that you'll help us see how we can be re-inspired. I, in some ways, we just, we need to be inspired every day as we grow in the virtues and disciplines necessary for love. Help us. Holy Spirit, help us. God, reveal your Christ more perfectly to us, more beautifully. Help us to look on Jesus as an author and perfecter of our faith. Build us up with each other's gifts and ministries until we are perfect in Christ. Help us to really want to be, even in the face of our enemies, perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect in character and in love and in belief and in trust and in hope. In Jesus' name.